Have you ever had somebody come to your door or maybe walk up to you in a store and uh, they come up to you, they confront you either at your door or somewhere in public and uh, they start talking to you about you if you know Jesus or maybe they hand you that little million dollar bill that has the message of the gospel on the back of it. And sometimes when they confront you that way, right, when people come to you, Grace, I know it's your first time here, but come on now. And so you, you get, you know, confronted at the door or somewhere in public and uh, you get a little uncomfortable maybe if you don't like that kind of social interaction. And so they're trying to tell you about the gospel and you're like, hey man, I'm on your team already. Like you can just leave me alone. I got shopping to do. And I'll be honest with you, I'm the kind of person who enjoys being the one initiating that conversation. Like I will uh, go through the drive-thru and sometimes this annoys Bailey, but I'll just ask the person at the drive-thru if they know the Lord. And she's like, hey, there's cars behind us trying to get there at McDonald's too, you know. But um, So I, I actually, I commend people who do door-to-door evangelism. And really, I, I actually think we probably need a little bit more of that here in Center Point. Uh, but the probably uh, that I have here is that some the problem that I have here, excuse me, is that some people go out and they do door-to-door disciple or evangelism, and they you know they talk to people about the gospel in public, and then there's no follow-up. There's no ensuring that people actually got the message of the gospel from your one conversation. And so you, you prayed with them, but you, you never really ensured that they could uh, speak the gospel back to you, that they knew it enough to, to take it into their hearts. So uh, there's not a follow-up process to see if that person is actually bearing the fruit of being a follower of Jesus in their life uh, or to help them along their first steps as a disciple. I remember once doing yard work with my grandfather, uh, a man who I'd never heard talk about God before, and he, you know, he taught high school physics, and uh, so we were standing in the yard, and someone came up to him and started talking to him about Jesus and what the gospel was, and uh, then asked if he wanted to pray and accept Jesus as a Savior, and he said yes, and they prayed underneath that tree, and then I never heard my grandfather say the name Jesus again in his life. Or, or, or the time that uh, some nuns from the local Catholic church came to our door, and, and uh, you've heard me say this before, but my father and I used to bond a little bit over our uh, anti-religious views, and uh, my dad really is a kind-hearted individual, and so he and he's, tries to be funny, and so these nuns came to the door and asked if we knew Jesus, and he said, no, we actually worship Satan here. And uh, those nuns were so appalled that they slammed the door right in our faces, right? And so I think that while uh, it's appropriate for us to participate in evangelism, actually today we're going to talk about how uh, we are called to be disciples who make disciples. It's also appropriate that we think about when we go to make disciples, we first pay attention to what the message of the gospel is is and how Jesus called his disciples to make disciples. So our hearts should be for the people who need to be saved wherever we find them in life. So this morning, if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 20, uh, that's where we have our main scripture. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, that's okay. There is a scripture on the screen for you as well. So this is Matthew chapter 10. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. 
There, these are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on, that, on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as a witness to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of our Father speaking through you. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that uh, it might bless us and flow through us, that uh, by the power of your gospel, that those words would uh, so enter into our spirits that they would flow out of us when we leave this place. And we thank you, Jesus, for uh, the truth of the message of your gospel, and we pray that we would boldly proclaim it this week wherever we find ourselves. And so we pray these things, Lord, in your heavenly name. Amen. So in Matthew chapter 10, we find ourselves at a point in Jesus's earthly ministry uh, where his relationship to his disciples changed. Prior to this, the disciples were following Jesus and Jesus was speaking mainly to large crowds. And then at this point, Jesus draws his disciples in very close to him and he gives them some teaching before he sends them out on their first evangelistic mission. So he first calls them he equips them, and then he sends them. He does that for the disciples, and he does that for us, right? I wonder how many of you, when I said we need more door-to-door evangelism in Center Point, got a little anxious, and you were like, are, you, are we about to go do that right now? Because that's not what I signed up for this morning, right? Or, or how many of you were like, if you're, if you're planning that, I'll make sure that I go to a different church that day, right? And so uh, we have to remember that when God places a calling upon our lives, uh, that It's based on his power and not ours. That it's based on his ability and not ours. That it's based on his knowledge and not ours. And that ultimately it's based upon his glory and not ours. So before we get ourselves all worked up saying there's no way I can do something like go out and preach the gospel and and talk to people about Jesus. There's no way I can do that. Here's the thing, Christians. That's exactly what we're called to do. But before you're sent to do it, trust that God will equip you. Through a variety of means, God will equip you and train you up in what he has called you to. He's not like my grandparents who taught my, par- my dad how to swim by just throwing him in the pool, right? Maybe some of you learned to swim that way too, right? It's not like Jesus says to Peter, hey, Peter, walk out to me on this water, but you figure out how you're going to stand on it and not sink, 
That's not the way that Jesus relates to us. God doesn't call his people to things that he doesn't plan to equip them for. So stop worrying about whether or not you're good enough to do what God wants you to do because it's not your goodness that he's asking for. It's your relationship and your obedience to him. Ultimately, the closer you are to him, the more in love with him you find yourself, the more obedient you will be to what he has called you to do. And because you're close to him, because you're in him, he will equip you before he sends you, just as he did to the apostles here and then later for the early church. And now everyone throughout the history of the world who would simply place their trust in him. And so when we speak of the provision that God gives for us in the area of calling, we have to understand that in Christ it is actually when we are weak that he is strong. And so our prayer as people who are called to be disciples, who make disciples, would be that he would give us the ability to fulfill the callings not on our own, but that in all of it we would become less and he would become greater. I admit to you that as one of your pastors, I have to preach that message to myself every day when I don't feel called to help lead and shepherd the congregation, when I don't feel called to to be in the ministry areas to which God has placed me. I must remind myself that it's not about how good or how bad I am but about the calling that Jesus has placed upon my life. And so something that probably trips us up here in Matthew chapter 10 is that Jesus instructed his disciples to go first to the Jews and not to the Gentiles. He says, go to the lost sheep of Israel and not to the Gentiles and the Samaritans. And just for a little refresher, uh, everyone who is not a Jew is a Gentile. So this room right here, Gentile club, right? And so Jesus says, go to the lost sheep of Israel, not to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. We read that, and some of us might think, what, does Jesus only care about the Jews? Does Jesus only care about Israel? And obviously the answer is no, because we're all sitting here in this room today. But something that's important for us to remember is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's not separate from it. And so early Christianity was actually more of an offshoot of Judaism than it was its own religion. Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and the, about the coming Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so all of these prophecies from the Old Testament show us that in the end, God's name would be preached to all of the nations so that they might be called children of him. But first, it would come to Israel, the people through whom God had chosen to work his redemptive plan of humanity from the very beginning of scripture all the way through Adam and Eve to Abraham to King David and then in the fulfillment that is Jesus Christ our Lord. So everything, so even though the message here, right, the message at this point in Jesus's ministry to his disciples is go to the lost sheep of Israel, we will see that by the end of his earthly life, Jesus was calling his followers to preach the gospel to everyone. That after his death and resurrection, the message of the gospel, the salvation that's available is not just available to the Jewish people, but to everyone. So Israel are ultimately a people who probably should have been ready to receive Jesus' message. His claim that he was God and the fulfillment of God's kingdom. And yet so many times in scripture, we see Jewish religious leaders not ready to accept who Jesus was. Jesus actually predicts this to his followers in verse 14 in Matthew 10. He says, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off of your feet. Jesus was preparing them to that, hey, you are going to go to some people who are supposed to be a part of God's people, and they will not be ready to accept the message that you are bringing to them. 
And so reading scripture, we can actually take a lot away from what God is telling, what Jesus is telling the apostles this morning when we think about evangelism ourselves. And we have to understand that the message given to them is not exactly the same as the message to us because we're called to preach to all of the nations. And that's actually an important thing to remember in scripture that we shouldn't superimpose ourselves upon the words of God, right? When you read David and Goliath, you're not David. You're actually more like uh, David's scared brothers who needed to be saved by David, right? But even though we are not Israel or we are not the apostles, the message that we can take away from this passage and apply to ourselves is that the gospel needed to be preached even to those who were already the people of God. And actually, there's a lot of precedent for that throughout all of the New Testament. I'm going to read one example for you this morning. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, a group of people who are already followers of Jesus, and this is what he says to them. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Paul says that it is by the gospel that these believers have been saved, right? And not only are they saved just in that one moment in which they place their faith and trust in Christ, but they're actually saved forever. It's not like accepting Jesus as a, as a one-time deal that they step into and then they never again have to pursue the Lord, but that they are saved ultimately and finally in that moment and then called into a life long discipleship or following of Jesus Christ. And so in order to fulfill the commandment to make disciples that Jesus gives to his apostles and then to us, we must first be disciples ourselves. If we are to lead people in the way that leads to life, we must first have that life ourselves. We must first know the gospel and have accepted Jesus as our saviors. The disciples ultimately are people that have been saved by the gospel, right? The gospel message that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that because of his life, his death, and his resurrection, you can be saved from your sins and reconciled to him if you simply put your faith in him. That's the message of the gospel that these disciples have accepted. And before we talk about getting the message of the gospel out to all of the nations, we first have to evaluate whether or not we have the message of the gospel within ourselves. According to the Pew Research Center, the number of people in the United States who identify as Christian is down 12% in the last decade, and for the first time in history, the number of people who rarely attend church is over half of the country. Before we can preach the gospel, it's imperative that we first have experienced it and accepted it ourselves. In March 2020, right before the pandemic started, I was at a church conference with some youth at a church that I was volunteering at at the time, and I had the opportunity to connect with a former student who was a junior in high school. Uh, at a, um, he was from a church that I volunteered at when I was a freshman in college, and we were up late talking, and he pointed me to this podcast uh, with a, two gentlemen who had a very large following, especially among people in his age range, and they actually gained their following initially as being people who were both funny 
and Christian. But over the course of their, uh, their show, as they, their podcast grew, they talked about how uh, both of them were uh, evangelical Christians. One of them even worked on a church staff. And uh, they talked about how doubt started to be sown in among them. And then they ultimately very publicly left the church and took their wives and their kids away from the church as well. Uh, and they have these episodes where they kind of reflect on why they left the church and why they uh, forsook you know, their calling as disciples of Christ. And the thing that broke my heart about this conversation is I'm sitting looking at a, a junior in high school, a student who I cared for, who I knew had a heart for the Lord, and he is being uh, shaken in his foundations because these people who have a platform of millions of people just the same age as him <clears throat> had publicly said, I once believed the gospel, but now I don't. And unfortunately, it's actually become, excuse me, <clears throat> it's actually become relatively popular. People are starting to profit off of gaining large followings on social media and YouTube and other platforms by talking about how they left the church. And he said to me, how can somebody know Jesus? How can somebody work for a church and be ministering to people and turn away? Are they, are they right to do that? And the hard truth from Scripture comes to us in 1 John chapter 2. It says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as many of you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. My argument would be that you cannot claim to, accept, to have accepted the King of kings and the Lord of lords as your Savior and experience the glory and majesty of God and then turn away from it. The Bible says right here that those people were never really Christian. And the unfortunate thing, the thing that I think we see in those 12% plus who are leaving the church, who once called themselves Christians and now no longer do, the thing that we're seeing is that those people never truly knew the gospel, that they never actually had accepted Christ as their savior and worshiped him in spirit and in truth. And I think there are two sides of the spectrum in which people can fall into and then they're more likely to turn away from God at some point because ultimately they were never really following him. The first one is a group that tends to confuse feelings with Jesus. The idea is that however I feel is how God must be speaking to me, and all of my worship and devotion to God must be met with some kind of feeling, and if they aren't, then God must not be listening to me. This group tends to prioritize feelings over even scripture, and when that happens, there's nowhere to draw the line as to what scripture should or should not be believed. People who fall into this trap tend to create a God for themselves in their head that is not real and certainly not the true God of the Bible. They're like the people in those verses from 1 John who deny Christ's divinity or deny his physical resurrection and the truth of God is not in them because they refuse to treat God with the kind of reverence he deserves. There's little no conviction regarding sin and ultimately in this group you can believe whatever you want and call yourself a Christian. The other group is a group of people that I think I say, I speak of carefully, 
because my, my purpose maybe is not to offend, but to open our eyes as to uh, whether or not we're truly following Jesus. The other group of people who claim to know the gospel or to be Christians that are often not truly Christian looks something like this. Uh, because I was born a Christian, because I went to church and got confirmed, because I didn't party in high school or college, because I didn't have sex before I was married, because I'm a moral conservative, or even because I showed up to church a lot, that made me a Christian. This group is the one that tends to get Christians labeled as hypocrites. They preach a salvation that is based off of good works and church attendance and not the gospel. The confrontation of sin in this group is met with, you'd better shape up before you show up, kind of attitude that pushes people to believe that they need to overcome their own sinful nature uh, by their own power in order to be saved. And they fail to recognize that your generational affiliation to the church and your own self-perception of goodness have nothing to do with your status as a Christian. I think we see people from both of these groups calling themselves Christian and then getting a lot of popularity online when they publicly leave the church. And I think we would do well to warn ourselves not to become someone in one of those groups, to ask ourselves, do I, do I really know the gospel? Do I, do I really have Jesus in my heart? And it's not just the people in Paul's day who fell into that trap, obviously. It's people in our day, too. So before we can even talk about getting out into the harvest field, as we'll speak of in a second, and making disciples, I think we have to evaluate our relationship with the Lord and say, have I trusted that I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Do I believe that Jesus began his ministry with a confession of sins that were not his own and ended his ministry with a death for sins that were not his own? Do I have a vibrant relationship with God? Am I pursuing the Lord daily and accepting the forgiveness of sin that only he can offer? Am I living into the hope of the gospel that has been presented to me in scripture? Or have I been patting myself on the back and telling myself that I'm going to heaven because I made it to church all four Sundays this month? In your spiritual walk and battle with sin, have you been trying to be good have you been trying to combat your sin on your own? Have you been trying more than you've been trusting? Directly preceding the, the scripture that we read this morning in Matthew 10, the last two verses of Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38 say this. This is Jesus speaking. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I know some of you in this room are farmers, but uh, some of us are not, and so I'm going to put this in like 21st century guy from the suburbs terms. Look at all these people who are ready and need to hear the good news that Jesus has come, but there aren't any people who are bold enough to go out and talk to them. So let's ask God to raise up some people who are bold for the sake of the gospel. And you'll remember we talked about earlier that even though for Jesus' apostles they were first to preach the message of salvation to the lost sheep of Israel, we get the Great Commission in Matthew 28 where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Notice that in both passages, Jesus assures the people he is calling that God will provide for them in their evangelistic pursuits. In the Great Commission, he says, surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And in our main passage today, he says, 
on my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. And then in our harvest passage, he begins by noting that God is the Lord of the harvest. It's not you or me who control the harvest, it's the Lord. And even though Jesus says to us that we will experience persecution, that, that trials and things will come up against us as we pursue making disciples that ultimately we are provided for by our Heavenly Father. The closer we are to him, the more in love with him we find ourselves, the more obedient we will be to what he has called us to. And because we're close to him, because we're in him, he will equip us before he sends us, just as he did to the apostles here, and then later for the early church, and now everyone throughout the history who would simply trust him. The calling to live out our lives for Christ cannot end with us. We cannot simply hear the Great Commission and then do nothing with it as we leave these doors. Now, of course, in different circumstances, the approach to evangelism might look different. But the goal to see those around us come to know Christ should not be the change. I'm not saying you have to be someone who asks the drive-through teenager if they know the Lord. But I am saying that in your pursuits, in your relationship with others, if you truly seek to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, if you truly desire to love your neighbor as you love yourself, then you have to love them enough to tell them about the gospel. I want to show you a quick portion of a video. It's 40 seconds long from a guy named Pendulet. He was a magician in a group called Penn and Teller. He was avidly atheist. And in his 40-second reflection on, uh, well, taken from a longer reflection on uh, a man who gave him a Bible after one of their shows, uh, an atheist preaches to us one of the best messages about evangelism that I have ever heard and that I hope you will hear. Note that he uses the word proselytize, but that's very similar to the word evangelize. Go ahead and take a look at this video. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. I get that it's not easy. I understand that even for myself, there are times when I feel God pushing me to talk to someone about the gospel, and I don't because I'm afraid of how they'll react or because I'm too busy and I have other things that I think I need to do. And Jesus himself warns the apostles in Matthew chapter 10, be ready, you are going to be arrested and you are going to be whipped in the synagogues because of the message that you're preaching on my behalf. But don't worry because the spirit of God will give you the words. So if we're truly to be disciples of Christ, both as individuals and as a church, we have to start stepping out in faith and preaching the gospel to those around us. It's part of the calling of being a disciple that we simply cannot neglect. And I'll admit to you this morning that this topic was heavy upon my heart this week for a couple of reasons. The first is that 
Sunday evening, Bailey and I lost a friend from college to suicide. And then hours later, well, not hours later, about a week later after uh, we had attended the funeral, I had the opportunity, Bailey and I had the opportunity to bless and celebrate with some of our best friends who had their third child this week. We lost a friend. He was 22. We went to his funeral, and then hours later, I'm sitting there holding my, my third godchild, and I'm overcome with emotion as I think to myself, is he going to grow up in a world where people have no hope? Is he going to grow up in a world where it seems like the best way to escape the pains of life is to cease life altogether? Or is the church going to start living into its calling? Are we going to start being the kind of disciples that Christ calls us to in the Great Commission? Are we going to put aside our anxieties and our worries? Are we going to start believing for the sake of the gospel that Jesus Christ, by the power of his spirit, will change hearts and lives? Are we going to trust, not in our own goodness, our own moral conservatism or our church attendance, are we going to trust in the God who stepped down from heaven and lifted us up out of the pit of our sin and gave us freedom from sin and eternal life? Are we going to trust that that same God who saved us can save all of the people that we interact with in our day-to-day? And are we going to be bold enough? Are we going to love our neighbors enough to not sit idly by as depression and anxiety leads them down a path that they cannot recover from? Or are we going to to trust in Jesus over our social anxieties? Are we going to trust in the Lord that the same God who saw a woman who had been struggling with bleeding and pain for over a decade, who had been to doctors and tried to have people heal her with magic and other things, and none of it had worked, and simply all she had to do was reach out and touch the hem of Jesus' garment, and he looked to her and said, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Are we going to trust that our faith can make not only us well, but are we going to speak that truth into the life of hurting and broken people that we see around us? That there's a God who is bigger than how broken and sinful our world is. That the reason we walk around with that on our walls and tattooed on ourselves and on our necklaces is not because it looks good, but because it was a torture tool that the Lord of the earth died on so that we would not have to live as slaves, but we could be free and have everlasting life. That message this morning is not just for the people in this room, but it's for those, it's for those people. And so church... The harvest is plenty. So I'm asking this morning that God in this congregation would raise up workers of the harvest. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we come to your table, as we celebrate with the sweet taste of bread and juice, the the body and blood of Christ that were broken and shed for us, God, that we would not have to live dead in our transgressions, but we could step in freedom into the life that you have called us to, Lord. We thank you for this physical representation of your gospel this morning through the elements. And we ask that as we receive these things, we would not let them remain within us, that we would not hide within ourselves 
the truth of the message of your gospel that needs to be and has to be preached to a fallen and broken world. So we thank you, Lord, and we ask that you continue to move in our congregation. We thank you for the power of your healing, and we ask, God, that by the power of your spirit, you would heal us from those things that are hindering us to preach your gospel to the nations. And we pray, God, that we would not be ashamed for the sake of the gospel, but we would boldly proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Christ. And it's in his holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. <laughs>